Hello, and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist Radio. I'm your host, Isaiah Henkel, and today we will be talking with Shobir Mazanani on careers in data science. As always, if you want to learn more about transitioning into an industry career, go to phdsgethired.com, put in your name and email address, and we will send you free information on our blueprint for transitioning into industry, as well as how to access our 4,000-plus member private PhD-only job referral network. Again, just go to phdsgethired.com. If you want to get access to our free blog articles and podcasts and have them sent to you every week by email, just go to cheekyscientist.com and sign up on our homepage. And finally, if you want to listen to all of our podcasts, you can find us on iTunes just by searching Cheeky Scientist Radio, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes and get all of our new podcasts every week. So again, we will be talking with Shobir Mazanani today on careers in data science starting now. Is specializes in solving problems regarding various subjects ranging from renewable energies to molecular electronics. Um, he obtained his PhD from the School of Molecular Sciences at Arizona State University. In 2015, he has also worked as a consultant, uh, technology scouter, and instructor. Currently, he is a data scientist at American Traffic Solutions, um, helping save lives by making roads safer and processes smarter. So very excited to have you on, Shabir. Thank you. Very excited to be here, and thank you guys for your patience. No problem. So we got video, we got audio. What more could you want? Uh, and I'm really excited to talk to you today because... I believe this is our first data scientist interview where we had video, number one, and uh, I think it's our first one where we've had an associate who's transitioned um, come back and, and really talk about the process. Now, as you know, it's a very hot field. We have a lot of associates interested in it. So I thought what would be good to start is kind of maybe walking us through your transition process, you know, as far back as why you decided to go into industry and why you decided to go into data science, and then quick rundown of what that process looked like for you. So uh, basically, first of all, uh, uh, I had a background in computational uh, studies. So I knew some programming, uh, the key for this sum. Uh, so I wasn't trained to be a software engineer or anything like that. And then on top of that, because I was mostly involved in quantum mechanics, I had a good background in terms of statistics and also uh, uh, linear algebra, which are the basics of machine learning to a very good degree. So mm -hmm. those were uh, the, so those were the core competencies that I had that I could leverage later. But that being said, there were a lot of things that I didn't know, and I still don't know some of them. Mm -hmm. um, the way I uh, started transitioning is I towards at the end of my PhD, I knew I don't want to go towards the regular pathway of doing postdocs and then try to get a job uh, in academia. Uh, and then I, when I started actually, when I joined the association and started going through the material uh, to narrow down what I want to become, uh, that those material actually really helped that soul searching part in which these are the type of activities I want to do. So I knew I wanted to uh, I liked computer. I liked kind of trying to come up with solutions. But at the same time, uh, it was about I want to interact. I want to be able to communicate results. I don't want to sit behind a monitor and try to just type in codes all day. So those helped me to actually get into this uh, idea of transitioning to data science, not just because it's a hot field, 
But uh, the other part that made me really interested is I believe uh, AI and uh, machine learning at this point is pretty much the way physics were at the beginning of the 20th century with all the quantum mechanic revolution and stuff. Mm. And I felt I want to be a part of it. So I was excited, so I jumped in. Um, the way I transitioned is I took some online courses and I started reading on my own. I did a lot of mistakes. Uh, I started, uh, which I will talk about them, but I took some courses, but uh, online courses are very good, but they're not enough at all mm. because uh, yeah, a lot of things that we need, they have very curated data sets and very clean cut questions. That's not really what you usually see in real world problems. So I started doing some uh, consultation gigs. Mm which gave me the opportunity to solve many different problems from people's homeworks, sometimes in machine learning, to, uh, to very different problems such as, I mean, I solved the problem about uh, how to predict uh, what horse is gonna win in a horse racing competition in Hong Kong. Huh. So wow. I could have never seen something like that, but, uh, so that gave me the uh, opportunity to, first of all, come up with practices of how to evaluate my own work and find out where are the locations that I need to work more. Mm. So that's the way I transitioned. It took me a year almost, uh, but I kind of kept doing it in a uh, recursive way mm. and an iterative way, and that's how I got it. No, I think that, the and there's a lot of great takeaways there, so I appreciate you sharing that. Um, for those of you listening, you know, the first thing that Shobir did, and he made a great point here, one that I failed to make earlier, was that he didn't go into data science because it was just a hot job. And we have a lot of PhDs that make that mistake, right? Whether it's data scientist, medical science liaison, whatever it might be, you know, for you. Uh, but instead, he looked at what he wanted to be doing on a daily basis and asking that question in you know, as practical as you can get, like, I don't want to be staring at a computer screen only or mm -hmm. behind a lab bench only, whatever it might be. I want to travel. I don't want to travel. These kind of things. You really need to ask yourself this question to make sure the, the position is a good fit for you. And this is also where in, informational interviews can come in handy. We haven't talked about that yet. But if you don't know what a specific position is going to require on a day-to-day -day basis, ask people. And then the other great takeaway is that Shobir found a way to get experience, like real-world experience, right? Not just didactic learning, not just, you know, some online course on, you know, some programming language or whatever it is, but he actually took on cases, essentially case studies um, from people, whether it's other people that he knew, like through networking, their homework or, or whatever it was. And that is a great, just a, a, a great example because it takes initiative to do that. It takes thinking a little bit outside the box and then actually valuing that real world experience, those real world case studies over whatever. And for the, most of you, a lot of you have studied for different types of exams, even to get into graduate school, right? Like the GRE or whatever. The best way to learn is to take actual exams or past exams or practice exams, not just to study vocabulary words. Absolutely. Um, so if you don't mind, I want to kind of give Please. you an example. Um, yeah. uh, so there is this website called Fiverr. Probably some of you guys have heard about it. It's basically freelance, a type of freelancer website. So that's where I started working. And uh, there was this uh, 
from the quality of, there was this customer I had, he had a very low quality image and he looked really old in that image. So I thought I'm helping out the grandpa, to be honest. <sighs> and uh, he had a uh, financial problem, actually, uh, kind of he wanted to add a feature to his existing code for uh, analyzing uh, stock market. So I was like, uh, I have no idea what is a stock market. I was very, so you have to be honest and because it's part of your integrity as uh, you have to show that you have integrity. You cannot just use other people's uh, lives as your own test bed, you know. Sure. So uh, I said, I have no idea what is stock market or what is it, this particular uh, triangling technique that you want. But I believe if you give me five days and you have enough time to give me five days, I can figure this piece out and solve it for you. Mm. And he was nice enough to say, yeah, sure, go ahead. Uh, it took me actually less than a day to finish it, uh, which I got lucky, I mean. Uh, but I solved the problem for him, sent it to him, and we had a kind of very uh, respectful uh, conversations around the solution and things like that. And that was done. Around a month later, or two months after that, he sent me a uh, he sent me a, a basically message via that website and said, "Hey, Shubhar, I'm hiring for this position in this uh, company. I'm going. We haven't even posted the job posting. This is it. Do you want to talk about it? And this is my phone number." Wow. It turned out that the guy that I thought had no technical idea uh, was uh, had worked for Microsoft for 15 years. And was now working at that at the time was working for this uh, new initiative at uh, for a, a Verizon company. Wow! And he offered me pretty much the position before even posting it. I started reading it. Uh, honestly, uh, Isaiah, it had sixteen lines of requirements, and I only knew one of them. <laughs> I only knew I did. I hadn't even heard of many of the softwares that he had named there as a requirement. Yeah. So I honestly told him, I said, I don't know any of these other parts. And he called me and we started uh, having a conversation. And uh, he, he's like, practically, uh, this is, it came down to this for him. He didn't even know if I was in US or not at the time. And he said, I realized if someone is interested and have the curiosity to go and find a problem in stock market and wants to tackle it, he can do anything. And he has a PhD. He would figure things out. He would learn what is necessary to learn. Mm. And they flew me the next day to uh, Silicon Valley. And wow. then they interviewed me and they offered me the job. And we did all the salary negotiations and everything. And mm. by the way, I hadn't even applied. And the job got posted after they offered me the position, by the way, which is another good takeaway message for all the cheekies who are applying. Mm -hmm. And the only reason I didn't get that job was that uh, at the time Verizon bought Yahoo and they wanted oh, yeah. they froze all their new hires. So just wow. to tell you, it has a lot of benefits in these regards as well. You start finding people in real positions that they can actually uh, help you out get a job later. What a you know, great story! One of the best I've ever I've heard, actually, and, and especially for this unique field. And for those of you listening, just to recap, I mean, you've seen, you've heard, just heard a lot of themes that we talk about consistently. How networking can lead to job referrals very quickly. How you will hear about jobs 
first before they're even posted, how many jobs are filled internally or through referrals before they're even posted online. You just got a live example of that, you know, straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak, since you brought up horses. Um, and so I think that's really important. And what I love about this is that it was a unique way to increase his network. So Shabir was looking to increase his skill set and his network at the same time. So he went to Fiverr, which is just like Elance used to be or Upwork or any of these sites where you can offer your services for free and for cheap and really just offer them for, I mean, like Fiverr started because people would offer $5 services, you know, inexpensive services to help you get some traction and some training. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we overthink it and we're like, well, I can't say I'm a consultant because I'm not working for like a management consultant firm, but you can do consulting, well, you know, boutique type consulting, freelance type consulting, just like a lot of associates have done freelance type um, medical writing and stuff. And that will help build up your resume and your ex expertise and your confidence. And most importantly, like what happened to Shobir, his network um, and his, uh, his, his industry credibility. So just, uh, just great insights. Um, yeah. Wow. That was, that was a great story. Uh, so let, let me just go back a little bit and try to define exactly what you do, right? So we talked about your transition. We talked about what your motivation was for it, figuring out what you wanted to do on a daily basis. What do you actually do on a daily basis? So if you had to say, you know, an average week, a day, as practical as you can even be, you know, I spend two hours programming, an hour here, or, uh, meetings or whatever, maybe you can give us some insights. Uh, so in industry, I believe meetings are uh, a big part of your day-to-day -day basis because their company has... Uh, different, uh, different, uh, basically, uh, groups and all of them have to be aligned. So we generally, uh, spend probably during a week, uh, easily like six to 10 hours, uh, meetings. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and it's very important to, by the way, set your expectations for the meetings. And there are a lot of things that you can, uh, you can use from your PhD days of how you try to, when collaborating with others, how to get everyone aligned, you know, so that the project goes faster. You are going to use those later in industry. So like what? that's a good thing. So for example, uh, I had done a lot of collaborations and many of them were actually remotely. So uh, groups across the globe and you learn how different, uh, how to set agenda and expectations for the meeting so that it wouldn't just go on and on and people would talk. You just mm. said, okay, this is what I want to get out of the meeting, and you communicate it. And when people see that you are valuing your uh, time, they actually start respecting you more. So mm. I did it in my PhD collaborations. Now I'm doing it in industry. It's all the same. Mm. Um, then um, a lot of it is how to define the project. So uh, we are actually in our team doing exactly a scientific uh, process of solving a problem. First of all, we do descriptive analysis, looking at the statistics of what is the distribution of different, you know, depending on the problem uh, of that we have, describe the problem, and then uh, write the requirements, write down your assumptions, test your assumptions, and uh, put a plan to uh, get to it. And that so this is, and then you have a lot of data cleaning because you get the data, it has noise in it, it has, uh, which means you have to spend a considerable amount of time actually, what we call data scrubbing. <laughs> it's uh, 
finding the inconsistencies. Is the data that you have even trustworthy? Bringing data from other sources uh, to uh, make sure uh, and kind of overlay different dimensions of data sets from other different sources. And this part takes the majority of your time in some degrees and then um, spend time to actually write the solution and look at the data and get the insight. That's usually the shortest part of your day, but it's the most exciting part. So basically, if we say we have a 40-hour day, 40 hours, sorry, oh, I wish I had 40 hour day, 40 hour week, <laughs> uh, uh, then um, I would say uh, 10 hours of it goes to uh, meetings, 20 hours goes into data cleaning and doing the initial descriptive analysis, then another five hours is probably going into, um, into basically uh, writing the actual solution, the codes, and then the rest of it is all about uh, basically testing it and reevaluating it. And then on top of that, try to make a PowerPoint so that you can communicate it well to the mm. stakeholders. So uh, it's a lot closer to what we did in PhD times. But the mm. only biggest difference I can see is that uh, you pick problems that are meaningful to the business, not because, not just because they're interesting to you. Mm. It should drive money. It should drive value to the business as well. So, value, yeah, I think that's the good, the right word because the business has a set of objectives they're trying to achieve, right? And it's not just, as you said, knowledge for knowledge's sake. It could be they want to increase revenue, decrease expenses, it could be they want to bring on more users, whatever it might be, right? And Absolutely. so what you're doing has to be aligned with that, which is a bit different. Um, you brought up a couple of things and I just wanted to dig into them for people who don't know, um, especially because every f industry has its own nomenclature, right? So you talk mm -hmm. about data cleaning, descriptive analysis, maybe you can talk a little bit about those for people who have no clue uh, sure. in this field that they're interested. Sure, so basically, uh so imagine, I, I would put it in kind of more scientific. I wasn't an experimentalist, so for the experimentalist out there, I'm sorry if I don't make sense. But this was my understanding of what you guys were doing during my PhD, so I'm sorry about that. So you run an experiment. Uh, you get a bunch of data points, a bunch of results. For example, you look at, uh, I don't know, a spectrum, an IR spectrum for material or something. So you get all the data. What is the first thing that you do? You start making sure that does the data make sense to you? For example, uh, you put some standards to make sure that the, the machine is calibrated and stuff like that. The data cleaning part of it is that, that you are trying to make sure that your data makes sense. Uh, there's no uh, flaws in it. The other part of it, which is a lot more common, is that in real world, uh, issues, we don't always have data for everything. For example, imagine we have sensors or cameras 24-7 uh, in the streets over the span of like seven years. They're bound to be failure, like equipment failure. They're, I don't know, a bird would, can come and sit on the camera and block the view so we don't get any counts for a day. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of missing, for example, data points. We have to, uh, in, you have to investigate that and make sure that those missing data points and stuff 
uh, how are you going to handle it? And making decisions based on how you're going to handle it can actually uh, sometimes even change the result that you're getting. So in your input is your data. So you have to make that as trustworthy as possible mm. for yourself. And then the other part is uh, you, don't, you don't always just use your, uh, the data that your company has. For example, there is a lot of open data uh, out there. New York City has pretty much everything as in their open data. So if, you wa- if I want to do an analysis for New York City, I would dig into that. But mm. their, um, no- their nomenclature, their um, uh, the dimensions that the data have is not probably similar to what I have. So what I have to do is I have to combine those two data sets and bring all those information together. So that's the data cleaning part. The descriptive analysis is exactly what every scientist do. You want to describe what is your current scenario. So there is this framework that I, a lot of times I try to use. It's that what is it that needs to be changed? What is it uh, that we need to change it to? Mm. How am I going to make this change happen? So I usually try to structure my problem into something like that. Mm. No, that's very helpful. And I think for uh, a lot of you listening, it's, it, it helps you get, you know, grasp some of the, the specifics of this field, right? And I'm sure you work with a lot of different type of individuals. You talked about a little bit of cross-functional work that you have to do, right? The collaborations. Mm-hmm. Who are some of these people that you work with, I would say, you know, cross-functionally or laterally? Do you work with a lot of analysts? Do you work with a lot of experimentalists, like you said? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you can talk about that a bit. Sure, sure. Um, it's very different. So, um, a lot of times uh, I work with, uh, usually with uh, the VP of the company, of different business units and their senior vice presidents and vice presidents of the company and, or the middle management. So um, our team is called, uh, we are basically, I'm part of an, uh, an advanced analytics team. Basically, whenever they have a problem that they don't even, sometimes they don't even know how to define it or they don't, their usual methods kind of didn't give them any results. They just throw it as, at our team and say, do you guys want to pick it? The beauty of our team is that uh, we have the luxury of choosing which problems we want to solve. So this is kind of a unique, one of the unique reasons that I chose the current position uh, because it gives me the opportunity to actually pick. But a lot of times you're, uh, there are people who are very good at mathematics, which is makes uh, communication easier. But uh, there are a lot of situations mm-hmm. in which we go to a city, for example, uh, and have a meeting with city officials. There is someone there who is uh, an engineer, traffic engineer, who knows kind of numbers about these things. But we have people who are from normal walks of life. So you have to make sure that you communicate things to everyone so that everyone understands it. So what I have for you guys is in case you are not happy with um, basically transferring insights and knowledge to layman's, as we kind of Mm. sometimes term them, uh, this might not necessarily be a good fit for you. You should. So communication skills is a big transferable skill. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, by and so, you, you basically need to be able to dig into the complex uh, data and then mm-hmm. to 
be able to communicate them to all different laymen or yep. other specialists in other areas, right? So just to give you an idea, a simple regression of just fitting a straight line to data, which for all of us is very probably very common, uh, is not as obvious as you think it is. Mm-hmm. And people would ask you, why do you say this slope means this? And, and you, don't, you have to be uh, patient in some degree, and you don't have to have the wrong attitude of you know, being like, oh my God, they don't even get the regression. So you need to have empathy too, <laughs> if you want to be, I think. In this. It's a, uh, you bring up really good points um, in, in, a, in a better light than I think we've had brought up previously. And for those of you listening, <laughs> when, I, like, when I had an application scientist job, my first job, and I learned very quickly what Shobir is saying. You have to be able to speak, as I would say, you got to be able to speak nerd and normal person interchangeably, right? So you got to be able to yes. speak very specific, you know, your uh, specific field, you know, uh, whatever uh, jargon I would say, and then speak about it in a way that you can explain it to a, a middle school kid, right? Like a, a grade school kid almost. And there's ways to develop that skills, obviously, through practice. You want to talk to many different types of people. This is why, again, we do a, we really want you to go to not just other networking events with other PhDs, but go to these blue ocean events with business people who have zero scientific background. Try to have a meaningful discussion with as many of them as possible on what you do, right? You're not going to be able to use the same jargon as a crutch. You have to talk about it more simplistically, and you'll learn which words to say. You'll see what words they understand like where their eyes kind of light up but they don't very important and then reading too like just like you read like you get a grad school and you read publication after publication it helps you get a framework for the industry or the field that you're in reading more simple kind of pop culture based type stuff or or whatever it might be uh even novels there's there's a not to go totally off on a tangent here but there was a great study showing that reading classic literature actually increases empathy and increases your communication skills um, for a variety of people, not just for a specific field. Anyway, so there's many different ways to work on that, but it's a crucial transferable skill. Um, like said. And Absolutely. you wouldn't think that. You'd think data scientist, this is someone who's just going to look at the data, right? Ruthlessly evaluate it and be done. But And, and on top of that, you have to, it's a very fast growing uh, field. So you have to read a lot of papers if you really want to mm. be a good data scientist because it's it's changing at a crazy pace that it's very hard to keep up with it. Uh, so you have to do that part as well as, you know, read a lot of business-related topics. And so you're, I kind of like it because I wanted to be a lifelong, lifetime learner, and I think this is giving me what I wanted. So hmm. again, going back to that and uh, modules. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad the modules helped. And, and just a, a plug for the modules, for those of you, you might think, okay, I'm just going to go into the group, but actually going through the modules is helpful. Um, as you've heard from Shabir over and over again. So get that basic training down for your job search. Mm-hmm. Um, but one question we always get a lot, especially for data scientist positions is that do I, I have to have, like, do I have to learn this, pro- I have to know this programming lang- language before? Mm-hmm. Or do I have to have a computational-related PhD? Uh, Susie just yes. asked this. 
Um, do I have to have, uh, you know, do I have to know advanced linear or non-linear non statistics, uh, right? Like these sp yeah. specific things. And, and you mentioned on-the-job training a bit before, but maybe you can circle back to that. Yes. And talk about this a little bit. So uh, this is the mistake that I made initially was I started uh, chasing. I, look, I would look at the job descriptions, and then I started chasing to some degree the technologies. So today people, uh, I would see like, oh, most of the job uh, openings today are talking about our programming language. Tomorrow it was Python. The day after it was Scala. And I got overwhelmed because I was trying to learn all of them, and it's impossible to do. Hmm. Now, uh, that's one thing. Uh, then I, at, towards actually towards the very end of my uh, search, I found a mentor who we used to go to the same uh, grad school, uh, same undergrad, sorry, uh, and now she was a data scientist at Google, uh, so very matured in the field. And I basically started talking with her and, uh, as an informational type of interview, and she said, Go back, the programmings and things like that you can learn. This takes us to the end of this Cheeky Scientist radio podcast episode that you have been listening to. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and leave a review and let us know what you would like to hear more of. If you're interested in transitioning into industry, go to phdsgethired.com and enter your name and email address, and we will give you information about our PhD job search blueprint, specifically for PhDs who want to transition into industry, as well as our PhD-only 4,000-plus member private job referral network. Again, go to phdsgethired.com and enter your name and email address now. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.